0: Open your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 19. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. Our text is verses 7 and 8. I'll be explaining those verses especially in the sermon this morning in light of the chapter and in light of the entirety of the Word of God. Our sermon concerns the future, what's going to happen in the future. A Christian believes what the Bible says about the past and about the present, but he also believes what the Bible says about the future. Let's read Revelation chapter 19. And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed, that's clothed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. And I, this is John, the apostle John speaking, and I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen white and clean and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword and with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty god and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written king of kings and lord of lords and I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God that ye may eat the flesh of kings and of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and them that sit on them and the flesh of all men both free and bond, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse which sword proceeded out of his mouth and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. To that point we read the holy and inspired word of God. Our text is verses 7 and 8. Let's read those two verses again. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Beloved of God, I hope that everyone here has had the opportunity at least once to listen to Handel's Messiah from the beginning to end, all two and a half hours of it. If you haven't, I hope that you do sometime in your life. It's a marvelous, marvelous song, peace. But if you haven't ever listened to the Messiah in your life and have no desire to do so, you probably still know at least one part of the Messiah. That is the Hallelujah Chorus. The inspiration for that Hallelujah Chorus came from verses 1-6 through of the passage of Scripture we read this morning. Revelation chapter 19. There, you will notice, there is a fourfold hallelujah. Verse 1, and after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, hallelujah, for he hath judged the great whore. Verse 3, and again they said, hallelujah, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. Verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four beasts fell down saying, amen, amen hallelujah. And then the fourth and climactic one is in verse 6. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and the voice of mighty thundering saying hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The first three of those four hallelujahs is praising Jehovah God for the fall of the Antichrist and his anti-bride, the anti-church. The devil can never think of anything on his own. All he can do is try to twist what God thinks up. So, does God have his Christ? Then the devil puts forth his Antichrist. Antichrist does the Christ have his bride, the church? Well, then the Antichrist has his anti-bride, the anti-church, what's called the whore or Babylon. It's the false church in the wicked culture that doesn't want to obey God's holy word. The first three hallelujahs are praising God for the fact that that falls away in the end, and then the Fourth, hallelujah, is praising God positively for the fact that in their place comes the Christ and his bride, the church, God's people from every nation, tribe, and language, and from the beginning to the end of the world. And that's what our text is about. Christ and the bride coming onto the scene, and now they're getting married. That reality in our text, verses 7 and 8, it's going to begin in the future when Jesus returns and is going to continue for all eternity in heaven. That reality is what your marriage, if you're married, and my marriage is pointing to. The marriage of the Lamb. In fact, this is what the very institution of marriage, God's creation of marriage, is pointing to. There is a true marriage, a better marriage, a greater marriage, the marriage that is coming, that all other marriages are supposed to be pointing us to. Our marriages are all the picture, this marriage is the reality. A marriage that every single one of God's people will be a part of, whether you're married here this morning or whether you're single, whether you come into the church of God and your marriage is fantastic, it's wonderful, it's going well, or your marriage has some difficulties and some struggles, all God's people will be a part of this perfect marriage not merely as the guests attending the wedding, but as those who make up the bride and who are being wed. It's the marriage of the lamb. That's the theme of the sermon this morning, the marriage of the lamb. Notice first the wedding itself, second the preparation for that wedding, and third The response given to that wedding in the text, and the response we ought to give to it too. The marriage of the Lamb, the wedding, the preparation, and the response. Every wedding has a groom. This wedding has the groom. Verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the lamb is come." The groom is the lamb. But children, you know that lambs don't get married, don't you? This lamb who's standing here in verse 7 is a picture of somebody else, and you know who it is, don't you? The lamb is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the groom. He's the one who weds the church. Jesus is spoken of as the groom all throughout the Scriptures, already in the Old Testament in Psalm 45, which we sang a little bit ago. Psalm 45 is a wonderful prophecy of this moment being communicated to us in our text that speaks of Jesus as the king getting married to his church, the queen, in John 3, verses 28 and 29, John the Baptist calls Jesus the bridegroom, the groom, and his church, the bride, and John the Baptist calls himself merely the friend of the groom. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus himself tells the parable of the ten virgins. In that parable, there is a father who is God, who is preparing for a wedding for his son, who is Jesus, who's getting married to the church. And then of course, there's Ephesians chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul says that all of our marriages are pointing to the marriage of Christ and the church. The groom is Christ. But it has to strike us this morning that when Christ comes to his wedding, he comes if I may say it this way, dressed in his lamb tuxedo. That has to strike us because the Lord Jesus appears on the pages of the book of Revelation, usually in other ways. Usually in ways that are images calculated to communicate to us, especially his power and his majesty, His sovereignty. We read one of those in the rest of chapter 19. Where He comes on His white horse. With those eyes as flames of fire with a, a Roman broadsword coming out of His mouth. The Jesus that people never knew. The same image is given in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. Same thing. Eyes like play, flames of fire that pierce into the soul. Out of his mouth coming this long sword and John is so frightened when he sees it that he falls to the ground so scared of this. In chapter 5 he appears as the lion. In chapter 10 he appears as this huge mighty being who has one foot on land and one foot on the seas and his legs are like pillars of brass and he has a a rainbow covering his head. He is this mighty, mighty being. But here, when he comes to his wedding, he comes as the lamb. Because this is what he wants his bride, the church, to see of him especially. He wants this to be in the forefront of of their mind on their wedding day. That who he has been for her is the lamb the one who was slain for her, the sacrifice for her sins, the one who loved her so much that he gave himself to the cross as a sacrificial offering to pay for her sins so that she has the right to be here on this wedding day and to be married to him. this is going to increase our love for him on this day. We know this about him already, but that this is on the forefront. We will look at him and we will see him and say this is the one who gave himself to the depths of hell for us, substituted himself in love. What a husband you're going to have on this day, church. This lamb is glorious, marvelous, In Colossians 1, Colossians 1, 14 through 20, the Apostle Paul puts together a string of excellencies about Jesus Christ in rapid-fire succession. Fourteen excellencies of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give them to you, and as I give them to you, think of this Christ standing here on this wedding day and that the church, all of God's people, are going to be with him forever. He as their head and husband Colossians 1, 14-20 He is the author of our redemption and the forgiveness of sins verse 14 He is the image of the invisible God you can't see God but you see God in Jesus Christ He is the firstborn of every creature verse 15 He's the one by whom everything has been created visible and invisible verse 16 He's the one for whom everything has been created visible and invisible verse 16 He's the one who was before all things verse 17. He's the one by whom everything consists, by whom everything is held together united. He is the head of the body of the church verse 18. He is the beginning verse 18. He is the firstborn from the dead verse 18. In all things He has the preeminence. Everything is unto Him. Verse 18. In Him all the fullness of God dwells. Verse 18. In Him there is peace between God and His people. By the blood of His cross. Verse 19. He reconciles all things to Himself. Whether they be in heaven or in earth. Or under the earth. Verse 19. And still when you see Him on that day. You're going to say... The half of it has not been told me. Of all of your marvels, Jesus Christ. This is the one with whom you will spend eternity, people of God. This is the one who will be everything that a husband is to be. He will be our head. He will be our provider. He will be our protector. He will know us. He will be granting to us everything that we stand in need of. We will walk down life's pathway with him forever into eternity. Does a wife desire a husband who has the ability to provide for her? All things have been given into his hand. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All the universe is in his possession. And he swears that he uses it all for the good of his bride, the church. What a wife desire, a husband who has great honor and great dignity. This Christ is the king of all the universe. All kings and all presidents must bow down to him. He rules over all things with perfect justice and righteousness. Psalm 45, gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, and in thy majesty ride for meekness and truth and right. Would a wife desire a husband who truly loves her? Not even hell burned hot enough or long enough to turn his love away. Would a wife desire a husband to lead and to guide her With wisdom, he is wisdom, Proverbs 8. And will lead and guide his church into all eternity with perfect wisdom. Does a wife desire a husband who will speak to her in right words, good words, lovely words, perfectly timed and perfectly affected. His words are like honey dripping from his lips. Song of Solomon. Would a wife desire a husband who will never abandon her, who will be faithful to her always? He hath said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. All God's people are protected physically, emotionally, spiritually under the headship of this Christ, this groom, forever and ever and ever. Whatever good you taste in your marriage, let it point you to the greater reality of that found here. Whatever disappointment you experience in your marriage, let it point you here in anticipation. Whatever you feel like you're missing out on, never having gotten married, or in a marriage that struggles, or with a spouse that has abandoned you, let it point you here in anticipation. Anticipation. Woman of God, married or single, is there any disappointment in your life? There's help for that in the church. But ultimately, look here, look to what's coming in the future and the marriage of the church to this Christ, where His headship will be so perfect over His people that He will grant them everything they stand in need of perfectly and utterly. Give yourself to rest in this, that this is coming, and let that give you contentment in your life, and even in your marriage, right now. Men, you too. Difficulty or struggle or disappointment in your life or even in your marriage. Look here ultimately for hope, for peace. Sometimes it's kind of difficult for men to wrap their minds around this and to understand this and to connect with this that the church is the bride of Jesus Christ. The image is of a bride, of a woman. And they are a part of this bride, but they're men. How does that work for us? Well, think about it this way. Of course you're men and you'll stay men for all eternity. But think about it this way. Every husband has a calling to be a head under this head, right? To provide, to protect, to give care for, spiritual, physical, emotional care for. And there's a weight to that, a burden that's upon a faithful and godly husband in that. But who is taking care of the husband? Who is providing for him? Who is protecting him? Who is granting to him what he stands in need of? And that's where you turn and you look here. And say, I do the best in my weakness with my abilities to provide that. But I need it too and I Need someone to provide for my family where I fail. And that's Jesus Christ. And He and His headship over me. I'm ahead under Him. And He and His headship over me provides that for me in part here in this sin cursed world. And ultimately, there, perfectly, He will grant everything that I stand in need of too. And there's a rest in that. There's a lifting of the burden off of me. I don't have to provide that anymore. I will be able to rest in His arms and know. He will give me and my family and all of God's people what they stand in need of. What a bridegroom is here in our text at this wedding. Every wedding has a groom. And second, every wedding has a bride. And the bride is here too at this wedding. And she's ready to get married. Verse 7 and his wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed or clothed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. This bride, standing here, is the church. The text says that the fine linen is the righteousness Of saints, it's the saints that are the bride, the saints are getting married, the church, the full body of Jesus Christ, not just this congregation, but all of God's people from the beginning of the world to the end of the world, from all over the world, all of God's elect, the company of the people of God, one complete whole now gathered here on this day. Look closely and you will see future you standing there amongst this body. Notice that the text says she's ready. The wife hath made herself ready. That means two things. First, it means that all the parts... Of this bride have come together. All of God's people are like individual parts of the body, just like a physical body has so many different body parts. All of God's individual people from all time and all places are like individual parts of this one whole body. When they come together as a whole at the end, they make up the body, the bride of Jesus Christ. And now at the end all of them are there They've all been gathered off of the, out of the history of this world and now the whole is complete. The bride is finished and there she stands. Secondly, that the wife has made herself ready means we're all fully glorified on this day. We all stand there sinless, righteous, holy, perfect. She's dressed For the lamb, the text says, wearing fine linen, clean and white, which is the righteousness of the saints. He is standing there in his lamb tuxedo. She is there in her righteousness dress. A dress that he gives to her. Notice. She doesn't weave this dress herself. To her, verse 8, to her it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen clean and white. It was granted, she's not standing there in her own righteousness, she's standing there in the righteousness of Christ, imputed to her, granted to her, given to her, and imparted to her. Here at this moment is the completion of Christ's own work in his people. It's the Completion of what Christ said He was doing with His church in Ephesians five, twenty-six and 27. Christ also loved His church and gave Himself for it that He might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word that He might present her to Himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be a holy church without blemish. He's been doing that in our lives, throughout our life, and now it's all finished, and it's finished for every single one of His people. And He's presenting her to Himself here, robed in the white robes of His own righteousness, sinless, glorious before her. Ladies, on your wedding day, if you are married, you probably wore a white dress, didn't you? I hope that you knew the reason for that tradition, or if you didn't, I hope that you do now. It was to point to here. That practice came about because of Revelation nineteen, seven, and 8, the fine linen, clean and white that the church will be robed in on that wedding day. And I'm sure when you were robed in your white gown, you were very, very lovely on your wedding day. But you still had sin in you. And spot and maybe a few wrinkles. On this day, all the church, all of God's people, everyone, the whole and every individual child of God that makes up the whole will be utterly spotless, holy, pure standing before him. Can you think about that? What that would be like? Can you imagine what it would be like to stand in front of the Lord Jesus completely and utterly sinless and pure so that the Christ of God with those piercing eyes of the flames of fire that you know can see into the depths of your soul, into the depths of your mind, into every corner. And you'll find nothing that is against him, nothing that is impure. But everything in you will be unto him And not because you've gotten so good at covering it up that he can't see it. He'll be able to pierce into the very depths and see everything. Things that nobody else has ever seen about you. And he'll see only purity. You won't have to open your mouth and wonder, if I can even open my mouth, something's going to come out that's going to be offensive. I'm going to say something. No, you won't. Everything will be pure Unto him. You'll be able to speak pure words. All of your motivations will be unto the king. This will be a marvelous day. And oh, how he'll love his church on that day. Psalm 45 that pictures this day says the king's daughter is all glorious within, all glorious inside. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. Of course, he's always desired his church, loved his church from eternity past. But on this day, when he finds the completion of all of his work, and here she stands, perfectly pure, all that he's done in her has come to its final perfect purpose, he will desire her like never before. It's the thought of this moment, of her standing before Him, perfectly pure, that kept Him going the way of the cross. The Garden of Gethsemane, on that cross, three hours of darkness bearing the wrath of God for our sins. Hebrews 12 says, it was for the joy that was set before Him that He endured the cross, despising the shame. What joy? This is the joy. The joy of having her here, every single one of His own before Him, utterly pure as His bride. It's always a wonderful moment at a wedding, a wedding here, when those back doors open and the bride starts coming down the aisle, everybody stands up, everybody turns around and looks at the bride who's clothed in white. But the minister who performs the wedding has a special kind of privilege because he's standing up here by that point, And the groom is right down there. When those doors open up and the bride starts to come down, everybody's looking at the bride. And he is too, but he gets to also look at the groom looking at the bride. And he gets to see the light on that man's face. As he sees his bride coming down the isle dressed in white. That's a picture of this. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, all glorious within. The bride and the groom are here. And for God's people who despise their own sin, who know their sin and the unrighteousness that's within them that is ugly, this is the day of days When I can come before Him utterly pure. When He's finished His work in me. I'm righteous through and through. Every wedding has a groom. Every wedding has a bride. And every wedding ends with a marriage, a union of that bride and groom. And that's here too, verse 7, the marriage of the Lamb is come. That's the union of these two, the bride and the lamb. This is a reference to the climax of the covenant of grace. God's covenant with his people, you know what that covenant is, perhaps one way to remember it is with three B's. God's covenant is a bond, that's the heart of it, the essence of it, a bond with a body in an abode. That's what it was in the beginning, that's what it's always been, that's what it will be unto eternity. There was the body, Adam and Eve were the church in the beginning, and they had a bond with God. He came down and he walked with them in the cool of the evening, in the abode of paradise, the Garden of Eden. You keep going in the Bible, in the Old Testament there's Israel, and Israel is the body, the church. And there is a bond between God and his church in the tabernacle, and the temple where God comes down and lives with them in the abode of the land of Palestine. And then you get to the New Testament and it's, it's getting greater and now you have the Holy Spirit poured out upon God's people, the elect from all over the world and that's the body and the bond is their communion with God in the Holy Spirit. And the abode is the instituted church. And then finally, at the end, in our text, there is the new heavens and new earth. And there is the body, the whole of God's people, the completed whole, in the abode of the new heavens and new earth. And the bond That's what this verse is talking about. The bond, the marriage, the union and communion with God that we will have there will be ultimate, greater than we have it now. It will be the ultimate of union with God in Jesus Christ. Isn't it the case that at the heart of your earthly marriage is an intimacy that is marvelous? It's a one flesh union. Every good conversation that you have as a couple, every encounter of the marriage bed undefiled, it's pointing you here to this intimacy, to this union that is coming. Every good friendship in the congregation that has intimacy at the heart of it, that's what a friendship is, not the same as marriage, but an intimacy of knowledge and communion with one another, it's pointing you here, to this intimacy, the greatest of all intimacies. Even the most intimate marriage that has ever been in the history of the world pales in comparison to the intimacy here between God and Christ and His church. All the holy angels who have been with God forever and ever and who will be with God forever and ever future, will not have the intimacy with God in Jesus Christ that his people will have. Even though they're perfect and sinless and holy too, they're the servants. We're the bride. And we will know him in such a unique way. And he us will know him and he us in the intimacy of the Redeemer and the redeemed. That's why he takes us through this world with all of its difficulties and all of its struggles and through the deep way of sin and grace and brings us through this pathway to this moment so that through all of this there's an intimacy we have with Him having been with Him through this deep way of sin and grace. So that in the end we're going to have direct personal union with the Lord Jesus Christ as the culmination of all of our own personal union and experience with Him and intertwined with all of that with everybody else who makes up this bride. And there will be perfect, deep expressions of love and delight in each other without sin forever. Forever. Did you know that this is the first time that the Bible calls her his wife? And the wife hath made herself ready. It talks about this marriage all throughout the Bible, but this is the first time it uses that word, wife, because right here they get married. When I in righteousness at last thy glorious face shall see, when all the weary night is past and I awake with thee to view the glories that abide, then, then I shall be satisfied. All human beings long for intimacy, beloved. They long to know and to be known, but apart from Jesus Christ, we look for it in all the wrong places. We look for it in sin and in the brotherhood of sin. We look for things that, that can't grant it to us, to grant it to us. But in Jesus Christ we long for it and we find it in the right place. We find it in him in part now in this life, but then fully. Then then I shall be satisfied, husband and wife. That's the wedding. There's a groom. There's a bride, and there's a union, but every wedding also has preparation. There's preparation, there's a plan, and preparation that gets carried out unto that day of that wedding, and there's that here too. Dad and mom, if you've ever had to prepare, plan, and carry out the preparations for a wedding of your daughter, You know the difficulty of that. It's a monumental task. But as difficult as that is, there has never been a preparation like this. The preparation for this wedding encompasses all time, all history, every single thing that happens, all history long. God created marriage to be a picture of this marriage, Christ in the church, God also in his providence determined that the process of getting married in the Bible times would be a picture of the process of preparation for this great marriage. and That's not my idea, that's the teaching of Jesus himself often referred to a wedding in the Bible times to picture the whole work of redemption leading unto this wedding, especially in the parable of the ten virgins. This is how a wedding or a marriage happened in the Bible times. First, the father would choose a bride for his son. Marriages were arranged in the Bible times. The father would choose a bride for his son, and if there was agreement, there was a match. Then secondly, the match would be announced all throughout the area. There is a match, I have a bride for my son. Then third would come the betrothal. And betrothal is similar to our engagement, but it's more serious. They were legally married at betrothal. They didn't consummate the marriage yet. That would wait for the actual wedding day. But they were legally married at the betrothal. That betrothal occurred on the basis of the future groom paying the dowry, the bride price for this bride. Often money, but in the case of Jacob in the Old Testament, seven years of work. After the betrothal, there was a Interval period between the betrothal and the actual wedding day, just like there is for us between the engagement and the wedding day. During that in between time, the groom would go to his father's house and he'd prepare a place for him and for his bride, usually building a room upon his father's house. That's how they got their start. And then when everything was ready, the groom and all of his friends would go from father's house to another house where the bride was, they'd get the bride, and they'd go back to father's house, and they'd have the wedding ceremony, and then they would consummate the marriage. That's what the parable of the ten virgins is all about. Now look, in eternity. God chose a bride for his son. Throughout the Old Testament, the match was announced to the word of the prophets. When Jesus came the first time, he betrothed himself to the church on the basis of the price of his own blood that he offered upon the cross for the sin of his people. He purchased his bride to himself so that we are betrothed to him and now we are living in that time in between the betrothal and the actual wedding day of our text that will occur at the end. At the end, Jesus Christ is going to come. With all of his friends, Matthew 25 says, all the holy angels will be with him. He went away, To do what? What did he say? To prepare a place for us. In Father's house are many rooms. And he's going to come back and he's going to get his bride and he's going to take her to Father's house, the new heavens and new earth, where our text will take place, the marriage of the Lamb, and we'll live with him forever and ever. Could anything be more lovely? This is what all history is all about. All history is a father and a son in the power of the Spirit preparing for the wedding day, the marriage of the Lamb. It's no wonder that these voices cry out in verse 7, the marriage of the Lamb is come! All history has been leading up to this. We've been waiting for this. Everything has been pointing to this. And now it's here. It's come. And so the voices cry, Hallelujah! The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The sovereign God has worked all history long to bring us to this point, the completion of His purposes. Doesn't that bring into focus The calling of the church right now as we wait in this interval between betrothal and the wedding day, waiting for him, growing in grace, preparing to meet him. This is why all the calls in the New Testament to watch and to wait. You're a betrothed woman. Anybody here cheating on him spiritually? Walking in sin while he's away? If I said to you, there's one thing that's in your life that you know is an offense to your groom, What pops into your head? Put it away. Put it out of your life. You're a betrothed woman to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. Watch and wait. He's coming. Read and hear his word that he left behind for us grow and graze and long for that day. It's all His work and finally at the end He'll grant us that white robe completed, formed by Him, and we'll see all our life He's been forming it, formed by Him will stand before Him. Isn't this marvelous? What's troubling you, Christian? Why are you so worried? Why are you so downcast? Why are you living in bitterness and anger? Could anything be as bad as this is good? There's a reason why everywhere around this text, there's celebration and rejoicing. Every wedding has a groom. Every wedding has a bride. Every wedding has a union of those two. Every wedding has preparation that is being carried out into this day and then finally every wedding is celebrated. The marriage supper of the Lamb. What the wedding reception is a picture of There's celebration. There's that fourfold hallelujah. And the fourth one is all about this. The marriage of the Lamb has come. Look at John in verse 10. He's so overcome by the wonder of this and the fact that all history has been pointing to this. That he falls down and he starts worshiping the angel. And the angel has to say, "No, don't worship me. This is what's coming. This is what your marriage is pointing to. This is what your marriage is preparing you for. And everything else beside. Look up to it. Look up to it together, husband and wife. Let this be at the heart of your union with each other, that together you look to this that's coming. Our marriage is pointing to this together. Rejoice in it together. It's sure. And he saith unto me, verse 9. These are the true sayings of God. This is coming. As real as your wife is by your side, husband, and as real as your husband is by your side, wife, as real as the warmth that is between you, this is coming. Hallelujah. Amen. Father, bless thy word to our hearing. Strengthen our faith by it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.